This event is presented by the Council on Foreign Relations. Thank you very much. Uh, welcome to today's Council on Foreign Relations meeting with Rafael Bostic, President and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. Uh, I'm Glenn Hubbard, a Professor of Finance and Economics uh, at Columbia University, and it's my honor and privilege to preside over today's discussion. This meeting is part of the Council C. Peter McCullough series on international economics, and as you just heard, it's on the record. Uh, Dr. Raphael Bostic became the 15th president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta in June of 2017. He's currently a voting member of the FOMC, the Federal Open Market Committee, the monetary policy-making body of the Federal Reserve System. Before he joined the bank, Raphael was a professor of public policy at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles. He also served at the Department of Housing and Urban Development and spent several years as an economist of, at the Federal Reserve Board of Governors. He earned his PhD in economics from Stanford University and his undergraduate degree from Harvard. He's leading the Atlanta Fed's efforts to promote safety in payments innovation, which includes importantly partnering with FinTech companies involved in payments. He's particularly uh, interested in working with policymakers and researchers to help find ways to make the economy work for every American. And he helps guide the Atlanta Fed's multifaceted program aimed at enhancing economic mobility and resilience. I can just say personally that I know him to be not only a very strong champion of effective monetary policy, but really for a very deep research concern in our profession of economics about well-being more broadly than just the asset holders the Fed often concerns itself with. And I would commend to everyone the excellent macro trackers of the Atlanta Fed under Raphael's direction. And of course, we gather at an interesting time. So please join me in welcoming President Raphael Bostic to talk about policy, the macro economy, and inequality. I want to dive right in. So today, we got news uh, on the CPI. The CPI print this morning startled some market participants uh, and some economists. Uh, the Atlanta Fed's own work has pointed to increases in expectations about inflation for businesses over the next years. Uh, and some prominent investors and economists have added to this commentary. What do you say to those who argue that the Fed is actually stoking inflation by maintaining its current policy stance? And how best should the Fed assure or reassure markets that inflation blips are transitory? Well, first of all, Professor Hubbard, it's really good to be here. Thank you for the invitation. And uh, hello to everyone at the Council on Foreign Relations. It's, it's really uh, nice to be here. Uh, you know, the inflation question is a question that we have uh, been facing for quite some time. I get this question pretty much every time I talk to folks uh, as I go around the country. And, and I have to say that uh, it, we're really in a turbulent time. And what I try to tell people is, uh, this is a time when I would expect to be there to be a fair amount of volatility in inflation. Uh, we know that if you look at year-over-year -year measures, uh, this is May. The, the, the readings were from, from April. Last April, this economy was in a very different place. And so if you just think about this as from a year-to-year -year basis, it shouldn't be a surprise that the number uh, looks pretty large. We call that a, sort of a base effect. 
But then beyond that, if you look at a number of the other factors that might be driving prices, uh, you think about uh, lumber. The, the cost of lumber has tripled in the last, uh, from a year ago, uh, and that's going to put upward pressure on prices. You think about the supply chain disruptions around uh, semiconductors that is associated with uh, production and, and getting things through the ports. Uh, all of this, uh, both, both of them driven in part uh, because of issues around uh, the pandemic and shifts in demand. Um, the, the real question you have to ask yourself as we think about these things is which of these shifts and pressures are likely to remain permanent versus those that are likely to remain transitory. And uh, to the extent that we think that there are, that, that the pressures are gonna be transitory, uh, that doesn't say to me that that uh, justifies uh, any kind of policy response actually, because it really doesn't reflect anything uh, fundamentally different from where we were before. Now, I do have to say, a lot has happened in the last year, and there have been many changes, both in terms of the demands from uh, consumers and the types of products that they're buying, as well as how producers are thinking their, about their relationship to the, to the marketplace and what kind of prices they can charge, as well as the demands of workers. And we're, we're seeing uh, workers uh, really start to step back and, and reflect on, you know, am I satisfied with my relationship with the workplace? A lot of folks got to stay home for a, a long period of time uh, and learn to value uh, their, the time that they have with their family. So I think there's a lot of shaking out that's, that's still to, to be done. Uh, so what we're trying to do at the Atlanta Fed is really understand how businesses are thinking about their relationship to the marketplace. Um, are they seeing these price pressures uh, uh, to be likely to linger for an ex extended period of time? Are we talking three years? Are we talking one year? Are we talking six months? And those are the types of questions that will make a big difference in really determining what the underlying structural uh, uh, relationships are. Now, you asked about what can the Fed do to assure people. You know, I think it's really just talk about what we're seeing and be as transparent as we possibly can. And uh, to me, I think another thing people should know is that um, we, we are worrying about this. Like I tell people all the time, I get paid to worry. And so you know, it is not as if inflation is going to evolve in ways uh, that might become troublesome and I'm not gonna notice it. If I do see that there's evidence of that, I'm gonna speak up and, and really advocate for policy moves. But right now, uh, it's really too soon to, to say, I think definitively that we're in that space. Uh, thanks, thanks so much for that. Of course, as economists, we would worry for free. It's always nice to be uh, nice to be paid for it. I want to I want to follow up on a couple of things you said. Uh, your comment about business people reminds me. So, two part question: One, what are business people telling you their views are on how transitory inflation is? And second, from your own perspective as an economist and Reserve Bank president, how long and and or how large would an inflation spike have to be to shake your confidence that it's transitory? Well, you're asking, these are very hard questions. And you, know, you mentioned that we have a number of tools uh, in our toolbox. Uh, one of the ones that's very important for us is a survey that we do of businesses. And, and it's a survey of, business, of inflation expectations. Uh, and this survey is one where we ask people sort of where are your pressures uh, and how long do you think they're, they're likely to last? Now, one thing that's been very interesting through this whole pandemic is that the time horizon for events last has really expanded. At the very beginning of the crisis, um, when we asked business leaders how long do they think this is going to last, they would say three to five months. 
and we're now 14 months later and businesses have really st started to, I think, understand that this, we're in a longer term uh, enterprise or experience. And so now businesses are talking, you know, we may see these pressures for six months uh, or 12 months. Uh, and uh, they're really starting to think about if it, if it goes much longer than 12 how temporary is it? Like, or, or should we start to make uh, different uh, uh, decisions about how we price? Right now, I think most businesses that we are talking to uh, don't expect these to be permanent shifts. Uh, they are telling us that, you know, there are some, uh, some circumstantial reasons why we're seeing pressures, but as we get to a more normal stance, uh, they're telling us that they expect things to, to come back to uh, something close to where we were before. Now, I do want to emphasize in all of this, we are still very much in a transitional phase, right? So um, I know for me, when, when uh, in, our, in our household, uh, we had two, my niece and nephew stayed with us um, and they did a school from home. Uh, and that is still sort of a, a modal uh, reality for many families. So until that gets resolved, until we get to the fall and we know what a new steady state is, a lot of families are still gonna be in flux in terms of uh, the, the demands and, and what kind of labor they're gonna make available to the workforce. I think businesses are recognizing that as well. And then we also have a bunch of changes around like, how people are working, what kind of goods are gonna be provided, uh, are we expecting commerce to happen in person versus remotely? All of these things are, are, are decisions that have yet to be made uh, it, to a final level uh, for pretty much anybody. So you know, in this transitional period, I think there's, there, we're gonna see a lot of volatility in prices and in pricing. Uh, and it'll be our job really to use our surveys and other tools to look through it and try to figure out uh, where the true signal is. Okay, I want to shift gears to the labor market because you, you mentioned the issues in the past year that have obviously disrupted work for many people. And we're still at least 8 million jobs short of where we needed to be from the pre-pandemic period. There are a lot of policy tools in the government's and the Fed's toolkit, but from where you sit, what do you think the best policy tools are for increasing employment and wage growth? And which of those tools belong to the Fed? Well, I think uh, for me, the most important tools uh, for people to make sure that we have an, an economy that works for everyone, that, that we have a, a labor force that is appealing and attractive for the jobs that are going to emerge is to make sure that we have an infrastructure that allows workers to get skills. Uh, so that starts with education for sure, but it also deals uh, very importantly with workforce development and the infrastructure we have to allow people who have been disrupted from their jobs uh, to be able to transition and get those skills that will allow them to continue to be appealing and, and to compete for the jobs that are going to emerge. So at our bank, we actually do a lot of work on workforce development. Uh, we have a Center for Workforce and Economic Opportunity, and we have a partnership with uh, the Markle Foundation and others called the Rework America Alliance, where we're trying to bring together businesses, uh, community co colleges and educators, and then community-based organizations that have relationships with workers to try to reconcile uh, a workforce development infrastructure, find out what jobs are, are going to be coming down the pike, and then building training programs that allow people to get the skills so that they can fill those jobs. Like that is going to be uh, very, very important because as you know, the economy has been uh, evolving rapidly and the skill set required for the new jobs is really quite different 
than the skills from the jobs that are being disrupted out. So we need to make sure that we have that workforce development infrastructure in place. Uh, and then you asked about you know, the Fed. I think the partnerships that we're doing is one way to do this. Another way to do this is really to make sure that we have an economy that continues to grow robustly uh, and in a, in a stable way. And so we need to make sure that our monetary policy really shepherds the economy that way. And I, I think that we're well positioned to do that. On that score, do you think the problems facing employment and wages are principally aggregate demand where the Fed's tools are very important? or supply disruptions in work where the Fed's tools may be less spot on? I think, to, I think right now, um, there's a little bit of both. I, I think the supply disruptions are significant. And you know, I mentioned that uh, workers are really trying to figure out what their, their place should be in the labor force uh, post-pandemic. If you look at the statistics in, in terms of labor force participation, we know those numbers are down. They're especially down for women. Uh, and, you know, it's unclear right now, you know, we're, we're going to do surveys to find out where people land on this, how much of that's going to come back and what people are going to be willing to do. And uh, so, so I think there is a real question about what the, the supply of labor is going to look like moving forward. And as we get a clearer understanding of that, um, that will help me think about what appropriate benchmarks are for uh, evaluating where the economy is and what its growth prospects are. Okay, I want to shift gears again, this time to a subject that is super important and that you have been a leader both in the Fed system and in the country in, in thinking about inequality. I, I start with a statement that will be familiar to everybody, that trends in income and wealth and inequality in the United States have been visible uh, at least since the 1970s. A few questions for you on that. What economic costs do you see of that inequality and what roles do you see for the Fed to play in reducing inequality? Well, you know, when I think about this, you know, one of the first things that, that really comes to mind is the sad reality or the unfortunate reality that in many communities, you know, having wealth and having income is, is tightly linked to the degree to which you're going to have access to opportunities. You think about the networks that, that people have. You think about the quality of the schools that people go to. And you think about just knowledge of the rules of the game, like what, what sorts of things do you need to do to make yourself uh, be noticed by employers and to move ahead? Um, they differ systematically by, by income and by wealth. Uh, and so when we see rising inequality, what it means is that there's a larger fraction of Americans uh, who are not going to know the rules of the game. They're not going to have those skills. And so we're not going to be able to benefit from their full engagement in the economy their full productivity, and indeed their entrepreneurship. Uh, so we wind up with an economy that is less than it could be, uh, less resilient than it could be, and less innovative than it could be. Now, there have been uh, some studies on this to try to quantify this. Uh, some colleagues of mine from the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco, as one example, did an analysis where they said, uh, where they found that uh, inequities by race and gender uh, cost the economy about $3 trillion uh, on an annual basis, um, that's real money and that's real productivity and output. Uh, and if you compound that over the years, uh, it just says to me that we could have an economy that is so much stronger and so much better. And I think that uh, given that, you know, one of our purviews is to try to see our economy be strong, uh, talking about this and highlighting these issues uh, is important. Now, in terms of our tools, uh, you know, I think that one of the important things that we've done in the last year or so 
is really articulate a different approach to our long-run uh, framework uh, in executing monetary policy to say we're going to not be so preemptive and uh, be presumptuous that we know that when employment uh, is, is rising, uh, that inflation is sure to follow. Uh, what we've seen in the last decade or so is that it's not really clear that inflation is so sure to follow. And by being preemptive, we may be preventing a lot of people, many of whom are in those, those parts of the economy or are less attached to those, economy, those parts of the economy that could have participated. So by holding off and letting uh, us have to see inflation before we move in those directions, uh, my hope is that that will leave more people to get attached uh, and attached in a stable and sustainable way, uh, which should really help with this. It is certainly true that the Fed's letting the economy run hot uh, does give that potential. Since the great financial crisis, if you were to look at monetary policy, do you think it has helped or exacerbated inequality? In other words, there's sort of two schools of thought. One is that by assisting economic recovery, it has certainly um, lessened inequality by giving people employment and wages. On the other hand, very accommodative monetary policy tends to reflate asset values, which would accrue to the benefit of asset holders who are by construction more well-to-do people. How, how do you sort that out? Has the Fed been a plus in this inequality debate since the Great Recession? So I actually don't think that's the right question. Uh, and mainly you, you uh, articulated one of the reasons why, which is you know, initial conditions uh, make, make it impossible for us to facilitate growth without seeing improvements in value. Growth will, value of assets, growth will sort of inherently do that. Uh, what I think is actually more important is uh, thinking about, is our policy contributing to families that didn't have assets or have fewer assets, have a hope of getting them? And I think on that front, our policies have been quite effective. And right before we got to the pandemic, you know, unemployment rates for African-Americans were at historic lows. Our unemployment rates overall were at historic lows. And I think that that's the kind of dynamic you have to get to. You can't benefit from asset growth unless you have assets. And you know, if we're gonna see wealth grow, we need to make sure that those at the, at the low end of the wealth distribution or the no end of the wealth distribution actually have some assets that then can accrue that wealth and start to get them on that trajectory. I want to go a little deeper in the inequality subject in, in another area about which you have written uh, and have been a spokesperson. You wrote an essay called Moral and Economic Imperatives to End Racism that I at least found very persuasive and important. How do you think that inequalities in income and wealth now by race should guide monetary policy, uh, if at all? And what tools does the Fed have to affect uh, progress there? So, you know, it's interesting. When I started this job, I looked at our mandate and I said to myself, you know, we need to make sure that this economy works for everyone. Like maximum employment needs to be maximum employment. And, and to me that we need to get that number to be as high as it can be uh, in a sustainable way, including those who may not have been attached as, uh, as systematically to the labor force. And that includes people of different races. And we know that the unemployment rates for African-Americans have historically been three to four percentage points higher than for the general population. Uh, and that's a problem. And if we look at the causes of those, uh, of the, of those, uh, those disparities, you know, structural racism and uh, the systematic rules that prevented African-Americans from gaining wealth and, and participating 
uh, in particular types of occupations, those things all contribute to, to the disparities we see today. Uh, and so I think it's, as we think about how do we get our economy to grow stronger and faster and to be more inclusive uh, and, and to work for everyone, we've got to acknowledge that those barriers exist and those realities were in place. Now, in terms of what the Fed does, you know, I talked about our long run framework and our different approach to, to uh, economic growth. I think that's one way, but there are other ways. You know, one is uh, to convene and to really drive and, and uh, uh, create venues and forums where people can have conversations around these root causes. You know, an, an example of us doing this is the Racism in the Economy webinar series uh, that we've been running since last fall. Um, I think it's been a great series, uh, but we're really trying to talk about not just what is the problem, but what are some solutions that people should be thinking about in trying to make amends for some of the, the, the uh, disadvantages that the system has imposed on people. A second thing that we do is we do research. And so we, uh, you mentioned some of our tools. We, we have a, a, a number of interesting data tools and I have uh, a staff at the bank that are doing research on things like evictions, uh, wealth stripping uh, devices such as heirs property uh, approaches and, and contract for deed sales. Uh, that it's a way that uh, people might be thinking they're approaching home ownership, but actually never accrue any equity. Um, we also advise local governments on ways that they might make, uh, make amends on this. this you know, one program that we have is something that I call um, ben the benefits cliff or advancing careers. And the benefits cliff is an idea that um, when you are on say welfare or uh, food stamps or uh, housing vouchers, if you, your income exceeds a, an eligibility threshold, for every dollar you gain, you lose a dollar in benefit. And it's dollar for dollar. Uh, if you're a family that's on multiple sources of support, if you gain a dollar, you're actually losing maybe three or four dollars. You're worse off. And so the incentive is not for that person to actually try to advance their career because they will put themselves worse off. And in some instances, they're worse off for 10 or 15 years. So you start to do that calculus that makes a big difference. So you know, my research director, Dave Altig, has a team that has put a spotlight on this and has really made the point to local governments, we need to change our incentive structures to give people incentives to make themselves better and to put themselves on a path to self-sufficiency, which should also translate to improvements in wealth. And then the last thing we do is that we promote things that work. And I mentioned in the Racism in the Economy series, uh, we talk, we're, we're looking at solutions. Uh, our centers and workforce development and other areas are also trying to lift up practices around apprenticeships and internships that we're seeing are putting people on very different trajectories. So those last four sets of things are not things that people often think about in terms of what the Federal Reserve uh, can do or does do. But I think they're, they're super important in broadening the, the coalition of people who are engaged in this and really challenging the conventional wisdom that whatever the institutions we have today, um, that's what we're stuck with. I actually think we can do better than that. That's great. I, I want to um, switch gears again to a topic that isn't in the Federal Reserve's direct purview, which is fiscal policy. The, the Fed, of course, doesn't have anything to do with the design of fiscal policy, but is there a Fed view about whether a fiscal expansion could be too large in terms of the way you all are thinking about monetary policy and how would the Fed determine that? So I'm not asking you about the scope of fiscal policy or particular bills, but just in general, is there such a thing as too much of a good thing? 
So I, I got to start by saying I, I can't tell you what the Fed thinks. I can only tell you what I think on this one because I, I haven't had uh, extensive conversations on this. And, you know, I think it, it matter. It depends on the context. So in the context of the pandemic, you know, I've said many times that I thought that it was important that the bridge that, that, that we are pr producing through uh, fiscal policy be large enough to maximize the number of families and businesses that uh, get to the recovery phase uh, with a minimum amount of damage. Uh, because to not do that well might lead to many families and businesses uh, in a much worse situation, which will make recovery all that much more difficult. So I think that's, an, that's one, one dynamic and, and uh, where, where size and, and larger might actually be better. In, in other instances, it's gonna de really depend on uh, two things. One, the extent to which uh, it's paid for. So I think uh, spending uh, and deficits are things that we must pay attention to. But the other part is really about what the money is being used for. You know, I, I, when I talk to business leaders, I go around the chambers of commerce and rotary clubs. You know, I make the point that pretty much everyone in the room has, has spent uh, and, got, and used debt. Uh, debt in and of itself is not necessarily a bad thing if the debt is used to produce something that puts you in a better trajectory or gets you to a better place. So in thinking about all of these sorts of packages and expenditures, you know, one question that, that we ask and that I ask is, you know, is it going to be used for things that make us more productive? Uh, because we can potentially leverage that uh, to be stronger and better positioned than if we didn't actually uh, spend that money. Okay. I want to ask another question about consequences of, of monetary policy. Uh, there's obviously a lot of attention as I began with about price inflation as a consequence of changes in monetary policy. But another way in which very aggressive monetary policies can show up is not just in price inflation, but in froth and financial markets and financial stability risks. And the Fed has commented on those risks recently. And I know you all monitor them closely. How worried are you about the potential for financial stability risks in this volatile period that you've, you've mentioned. And do you see any of those risks connected to uh, the Fed's monetary policy in any way? So, um, you know, as I said earlier, I get paid to worry. So, you know, I do think about uh, the risks that, are, uh, think about the possibility that risks are emerging uh, as the economy uh, runs very strongly. Uh, to, and so one of the things that I do uh, as I go around and I have my team do as well, is we ask people, are you seeing transactions that make you nervous? Are there deals that you're being asked to participate in that uh, where you're adjusting the standards by which you're uh, judging its, its appropriateness? And right now I've got to say, we're not seeing that on pretty much any front. Um, there is uncertainty out there and certainly there's risk out there. If you think about uh, the demand for office space, for example, uh, because we know that you know, a lot of workers are working from home, there's a question about whether businesses are going to decide that they need the same amount of office space. And that will have implications for the profitability of, of large real estate projects across the country. But in many of these instances, those leases are long-term leases. They haven't come due. And so the question hasn't been called. Uh, so right now, we're not seeing that. I'm not seeing uh, excessive froth in, in financial markets. Uh, and so, um, so I'm going to keep watching it, but I'm, I'm not feeling that bad right now. And in terms of what our policies are doing, you know, I, I go back to what our mandate is. Our mandate is stable prices, 
and maximum employment. Uh, and uh, I'm going to stay focused on that and thinking about whether our policy is appropriate, um, while at the same time staying mindful that if we see financial instability emerge, uh, that may be something that we have to uh, consider and address. I do want to remind members that in not too many minutes, we'll be turning to you for questions for President Bostic. So I have another question going back to the conversation we were having a few moments ago on inequality. The Fed is an enormous recruiter in our profession. So how can, does, should the Fed use that power as a major recruiter to shape diversity and inclusion in the economics profession? Well, you know, I, I, think the, I think the fact is that you know, the Fed system is the largest hirer and employer of economists every year uh, in the system. And, oh, bless uh, you. and so in that, in that space, I think we do have an opportunity uh, to, to drive change. Um, and frankly, I think we can do better on this. Uh, you know, we've been having a lot of conversations. And, and let me just step back and say, you know, I started at the Fed uh, in 1995, a, a long time ago, and we were having this conversation then. And I spent a lot of time going to historically black colleges and universities, trying to recruit uh, young African-Americans and young Latinos and, and others to come to the Fed, be interns, then try to get PhDs. Um, those didn't work. You know, clearly, we're still talking about it uh, you know, several decades later. Uh, and so it's really got me reflecting on what things can we do. So one, I think we have to remain intentional in reaching out to, to, to people in all corners who are pursuing these, these degrees uh, and, and really making sure they're aware that the Fed is, is out there. But I think there's another problem, which is the pool. If you look at the, the number of um, just minorities who are getting PhDs, uh, the number of women who are getting PhDs, you know, they're disproportionately low relative to their representation in the, the general population. I think 30% of econ PhDs are, are women, 15% uh, are African-American, Native American, or Latino, right? Those are very low percentages. So for me, um, I also think that we have to do better in, in, in improving the pool and growing the size of the pool, getting more people uh, to see economics uh, as something that, that they should be participating in that they can participate in and where their voice will be welcome. And I know that um, you know, in some instances, people are not feeling welcome even when they're interested. And I know in other in instances, people have been discouraged from very early on uh, of, uh, from participating in these, these fields. You know, I, I think about um, uh, what, what little girls and African-Americans hear about their abilities and expectations of them when they're in second grade and third grade and in fifth grade, um, as to if they're struggling with something, will the teacher, to what extent does the teacher say, oh, that's okay, you know, you, little girls don't do this anyway. And I worry that that, that message gets, gets into people's minds at, at very early ages, so that by the time they get to college, um, they don't think about economics as a possibility. They don't think about finance as a possibility. So one thing that we're, we're doing at, at our bank in partnership with uh, Reserve Banks in Philadelphia, St. Louis, and Richmond, is we're building curricula on these issues for fifth graders and for eighth graders. And we are actually gonna run pilots where we're gonna work with uh, local school districts. We've got some teachers that are lined up to deliver these courses um, because we, we, we think it's important that we have excellent training and positive reinforcements in these areas from the earliest stages. Where, so everybody knows that they can be good at math. 
everybody knows that economics is important and interesting, and everybody feels that it may be something that they should consider uh, as they go through their lives. And I'm really excited about it. We're, we're going to actually do this in a scientific way. So we're going to do a pretest. We're going to go through the curriculum. We're going to do a post-test, make sure that it's something that, that sticks with the kids. Uh, and I'm hopeful that it will, over time, get us a much larger cohort of women and minorities uh, who, who like economics uh, and who consider it as a, as a profession. Uh, thanks so much. At this time, I'd certainly like to invite uh, members to join our conversation uh, with their questions. And just a reminder again that this is uh, on the record. So I'll turn to the operator for the first question. We will take our first question from Emerita Torres. Hi, thank you so much. I'm Rita Torres. I'm with the Community Service Society of New York, um, Vice President for Policy and Research. Fascinating conversation. Um, you know, as, as you've discussed, the COVID-19 pandemic certainly exacerbated uh, socioeconomic and racial inequalities and, and labor inequalities. And one thing that's come up a lot um, recently has been a portable benefits model looking at benefits um, that can carry uh, alongside an individual rather than be provided by an employer. And this could be, you know, for healthcare, for childcare, even for workforce development training. Um, and so I'd love to hear your thoughts on whether you think a, a portable benefits model is feasible, practical, and, and useful to push us uh, towards a, an equitable recovery. Thank you. So that's an interesting question. I, I'm actually not that familiar with the portable model uh, of benefits. I will say that you know, from a port, from a just a general notion, portability is something that uh, is uh, uh, I think important to consider. And when you think about uh, the things that uh, that people worry about, and particularly lower income people that are already on the the edge in so many dimensions, um, if there's uncertainty about whether the supports they have are going to persist or whether the avenues for advancement are going to d suddenly disappear that's an extra source of stress uh, that they are going to have to endure uh, and carry with them. And we know that when people are facing uh, higher levels of stress, uh, they actually make poorer decisions. And that's true whether you're rich or you're poor, uh, the stress itself can, uh, can introduce that. So I think it's something to definitely explore. Um, I do think that there'd have to be a fair amount of coordination across employers if this was going to, to succeed. Um, but I think with uh, intention and purpose, uh, this, is, this should be something uh, uh, where we might see a coalition of businesses that agree to, to pursue that. So it's very interesting uh, as an idea, and uh, I'll actually think more on it. Okay, next question. Take our next question from Fred Hockberg. Thank you for an excellent conversation. Uh, I served at the Export Import Bank under President Obama and wrote a book on trade and training. So my question is, you know, before COVID, you know, AI was coming in and greater digitization of the economy, which was gonna be very disruptive to jobs. So how does the Fed even begin to think through what would full employment be? Because it's not people going back to their old jobs. That's part one and part two. We've, we haven't been terribly successful as a country on retraining people. We haven't put the money in. And we haven't been very innovative about it. When we tell people lifelong learning, and if you just if you only have a high school degree, the idea of going back to school is not an exciting proposition. So, one, how do we think about new jobs? And B, how do we kind of do a real reset around training people for a different economy than we 
had even two years ago. Thank you. Well, well thank you for those questions. Uh, and they're deep questions that we think about a lot. Uh, on, on the second point, I, I actually think that um, there are really several classes of jobs uh, that are available right now. Uh, and some of those classes don't require uh, extensive uh, education. Uh, so we have a tool on our website called the Opportunity Occupations Monitor, uh, which at a county level shows those uh, jobs that are plentiful and are likely to be plentiful over the next several years that don't require you to get more than about one or two years worth of training. Um, they'd be things like nursing and, and the like where the certificates are available. And so one approach we've taken here is just to put information out to say, you know, as things evolve and transition, um, there are still opportunities out there. And I think that's an important thing. And, and those opportunities don't require, don't have gigantic hurdles for you to get to because if you've been working in something for five, 10, 15 years, uh, the prospect of trying to reskill can be quite daunting. Now, you actually noted something that I think is, is very important, uh, which is that we, ha we don't have a, a strong track record in successfully doing uh, workforce uh, reskilling re and retraining. Uh, and that's one of the reasons uh, why we are, we've approached this to try to create that track record on the fly. So I mentioned the Rework America Alliance. The goal there is really to provide examples, real world examples with local context that shows this can be done and it can be done successfully with collaboration. Uh, but differently than I think some people conceived of this, it's not just a public sector program. It really is a multi-sector partnership uh, that can lead to that positive change. And then to your last question, uh, which was actually your first question on, you know, how do we think about uh, full employment in, uh, in a, a mechanized digital AI world? You know, one thing that, that has been very interesting is I've gone around uh, my district, um, I've gone to plants and, you know, asked them, you know, as you've introduced technology, um, what's happened to the number of jobs? And what they've told me is that the number of jobs is, they're, they're comparable, they're not exactly the same, uh, but the nature of those jobs has changed. So I think the issue that we face in this is, is uh, I think, less how many jobs are, go are going to be there, but who's going to fill those jobs. And, and as these transitions happen, uh, how do we manage the risk of, that some people, uh, if they don't get reskilled, could be left behind entirely. Uh, and so I'm trying to uh, make sure that that, that that question and that issue stays forefront in the mind of policymakers. As, uh, as we talk about the future of uh, the labor force in America and how work gets done and how goods get produced. Uh, next question. Take our next question from Marsha Eccles. Ms. Eccles, please accept the unmute now button. Moving on, we will take our next question from Jeffrey Laurenti. Uh, hi, uh, Raphael. You again. Uh, and forgive me for asking you a foreign relations kind of question. But back a dozen years ago, President Obama and the heads of the G20 countries and their central banks were all on an emergency basis impressed into a coordinated response, coordinated stimulus to deal with the financial meltdown. By comparison, one hears almost no chatter about international coordination responding to the economic impacts of this global pandemic. And aside from Treasury Secretary Yellen's uh, mooting a global corporate tax convention, there's almost 
no talk of international coordination at all. Are the concerns about jumpstarting economic growth now not transnational? Um, are the concerns that you and Professor Hubbard have been discussing about inequality and excluded groups strictly national and not appropriate for coordinated international policy? What's the CFR question here? So, so, so Jeffrey, thank you for that question. And I, I have to say a couple things on this. So, so one, I, I actually think there has been more international collaboration and coordination uh, than has been in the news. I, I think about in the very early days of the pandemic, um, uh, we at, at our central bank had lots of conversations that have continued on about how we as central banks across the, the, uh, the globe uh, need to be aware of what's happening and think about uh, how we position our policies so that they don't work at cross purposes to each other. So I think that 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 is going on. I would also say that um, I know, and I can just speak for myself, I am talking to international uh, uh, people um, uh, continuously. Just yesterday, I had a meeting with uh, the, the consul generals here in Atlanta from, uh, from Europe, from the EU, to talk about ways that we might uh, work together to promote uh, growth and support each other uh, to make sure that as we come out of the, the pandemic, we do so in, a, in the most effective and, and strong way. So I think there are many of these things that are going on. Uh, some, many of them may not be making the headlines the way they did uh, the, the great financial crisis, uh, but the nature of this, this, this challenge is a little different. And I think that may be one of the reasons that's driving that. Before I go to the next question, I wanted to actually come back to a theme you answered a couple of questions ago. I think it was Mr. Hochberg's question uh, where you, I said, you said quite rightly, the importance of public-private partnerships in uh, promoting new jobs and reskilling. I think of things like community colleges and local employers. The Federal Reserve, of course, is organized in districts. And so you have a district and other regional banks do. Is there a role for the Fed in trying to help that coordination among local businesses, local educational institutions, because you're not just Washington directed, you're in Atlanta and San Francisco and Chicago, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, so we spend a lot of time uh, in what we call system meetings, where we bring people together from all the 12 reserve banks and the board, just to talk about the things that we're doing and what we're learning. And, and one of the things that I really appreciate from that system, from being in a system, is that I can be a, a, a megaphone for learnings that happen in other districts to make sure that as things happen uh, and, and we see things that work, we're all letting everybody know. Because you know, one thing that is, that is very, very true, we know that uh, th those that are working in local government, those that are working in state governments, uh, really don't have the resources or the time to be scouring journals to figure out uh, which, which uh, demonstration projects have been the most effective. Um, so there is a, a very strong and clear need to have an institution that will do that for them and then provide that knowledge in a uh, digestible and accessible way. And that's something that we've really uh, stepped forward on. And you know, since I've been at this bank, I've really uh, emphasized for our team, uh, engagement with policymakers is where it's at. Just creating knowledge just to, for knowledge's sake is not enough. And if we can get out and get that knowledge deployed, uh, we can start to see change that really makes a difference in people's lives. Thanks. Uh, next question from the operator. Take our next question from Jeff Rosenswag. 
President Bostic, um, the question is going to be, is this time really different? And I'm sure in your career, you often hear, we want to do something about systemic racism in the job market. Everywhere I go, I'm a business professor, because way to business school at Emory University. People tell me they want to hire black persons, black students, firms, uh, 10 firms have said we're going to hire a million black people. Do you think this will go away or do you think this is the different time when we're moving toward an unemployment rate, for instance, of black persons, similar to that of white persons? So, you know, it's an interesting question. Um, uh, I actually am optimistic that, that things are different this time. Uh, and, and, you know, as I, the, I'll put it like this. Uh, when we were in the throes of the social unrest around uh, the murder of, of George Floyd, um, the conversations that I had in my bank uh, with business leaders across the country, um, and many of them here in Atlanta, I think, Jeff, maybe you were in some of these conversations, just had a different air to them. And it, it, it was almost as if there was uh, a recognition at a very deep way, in a deeper way, uh, that this is, a, a, this, is not, this is a societal problem and it requires a societal response. And as we've continued on, so the Metro Atlanta Chamber, for example, um, has a, a, a racial equity pledge that more than 200 businesses have taken. And the thing that I think is really different here is that it's not just a pledge. It, is, uh, it involves a playbook of actions that will be taken to try to change the, the reality, the on the ground reality, and make sure that access is, is real for, for all people. Uh, and that, those sorts of things I've never seen in my professional career before. Uh, and that gives me hope that, uh, that, this thing, that this, these efforts will endure and this time will be different. Uh, but of course, time will tell. And, and I will just say um, in my efforts and my engagements, I'm gonna do all I can to make sure that, that uh, the focus does not get distracted onto other things, uh, but that we really do uh, continue to emphasize the importance of making sure that this economy uh, really does work for everyone and that everyone has access to opportunity because we just can't afford uh, to let people uh, be on the sidelines uh, and not be able, be able to contribute their uh, 100%. Uh, excellent, excellent point. Uh, on that, do you think there are things that public policy or the Federal Reserve in particular can do to help underrepresented minorities build wealth? build networks? Are, are there things that are barriers from a policy perspective that could be removed as well as activities by business and other groups? Yeah, I think, I think there are a lot of things. And, you know, some of it's policy, some of it's just practices. And a lot of it actually is not super complicated. So I'll just give us one example that we're doing here in our bank. Uh, we've started a, a partnership program uh, with a local high school in a disadvantaged neighborhood, a neighborhood that has not historically had access to, to the networks and the, the, the expertise uh, and the exposure. Um, and the thing I really like about this is that it it's a program that one employee at my, sta my staff decided was important to do. She did the research, she found the school, she found the partnership, and she came to us and said, look, you guys can do this. It doesn't cost you know $5 million and you will change people's thinking about what's possible. And, you know, for uh, where we are in Midtown here in Atlanta, you can go maybe three miles from here, and there are kids who have never really heard of the Federal Reserve, who have never thought of the Federal Reserve as a possibility. And, you know, that's a tragedy. 
And so we're, we need to do more and do better on, on, on that. So those sorts of policies and just approaches to engaging our communities, I think can make a big difference. You know, I, I've said uh, many times, um, one of the things that really um, makes me sad is when I hear young people that don't dream big, like super big. And I think part of that is the, the exposure and the world that they live in uh, has not given them uh, the license to do that. And so it, it's, it behooves all of us uh, to try to, to change that and allow kids to dream because when they dream, they'll strive. And if they strive, they'll get further than they would otherwise. Uh, thank you for that. So let me turn back to the operator for more questions. I think our next question from Kristen Sud. Yes, hi. Uh, this is Christian Sud from Civic Healthcare. Um, I was just wondering when, you know, going back to the inflation discussion, um, can you in any way quantify the base effect for the rest of this year? And as you look out for the rest of this year, do you feel that there's a certain time when given all the gyrations we have had last year, when we get back to what we would consider more of a normalized inflation environment? Is it Q3? Is it you know, really starting in 22. Just curious what your thoughts are on that. Well, that, that's a very, very good question. What I would say is I'm expecting a lot of volatility at least through September. Uh, and then we'll have to see what's happening with the supply chain disruptions and uh, the commodity prices and those sorts of issues. So, so for the next, you know, four to five months, uh, I think we're going to see volatility and there's going to be a lot of noise that, that, that is that surrounds the true signal. Um, I'm also hopeful that we will get uh, signs through our survey responses uh, that will really give us a sense of whether there's a fundamental rethink happening uh, for among business leaders about how they think about pricing and how they think about uh, wages and, and uh, what they see as their ability to pass through increases in input costs to, to, to the final product market. Um, if we see those changes and, and they seem to be sustaining, um, that may be other information, but um, I don't think we're gonna get a clear, clear signal on this uh, to say for sure that the transitory things, uh, that there are things other than the transitory things that are driving this, um, but I'm gonna keep looking. So uh, next, through the, through the summer, I think it's gonna be hard. After that, uh, I think uh, then we'll have to look in earnest. Before I turn to the um, members again, your answer there makes me think of a, a follow-up question, which, you know, the Fed has shifted its inflation targeting toward an average inflation target approach. Do you think this is working well in practice? I mean, toward these ends of communicating what's transitory and what's not, do you, do you think the Fed is communicating this well? Do, does the Fed believe inflationary expectations remain fundamentally anchored in the new approach? So um, to the last question, I think, uh, you know, there, we need to work to make sure that expectations are anchored. Uh, I don't think that there's something inherent that says expectations are always going to be at a certain level. And so the communication then becomes really important. Uh, right before we had the pandemic, our institution had really struggled to get to our 2% inflation target. And I had a real concern that uh, expectations were starting to shift such that uh, people saw 2% as a ceiling as opposed to an average. So I think by being more explicit in talking about this as an average, that has been extremely helpful. Uh, and now the, the burden becomes letting it play out and not at the first sign that inflation is above 2%, uh, 
uh, taking dramatic actions because that might signal that we actually are acting it that is like it's a signal. So like it's a ceiling. So, so for me, I think the communication was important to start. Uh, I think it's been very explicit and most people really do appreciate that uh, we're gonna be comfortable with inflation above 2% for some time uh, to make sure that the average is 2% over a period of time. Uh, and uh, and that, that's kind of where I am on that. I, I think the last thing I would say is uh, when people ask me, like, how long will you be above 2%? I think it's very hard to say that for sure. I will say, though, that the trajectory of inflation once we get above 2% is going to be very important to me. So if we're at 2.3 and it stays at 2.3 relatively stably for a period of time, that's not going to be a source of concern. But if we go from 2.3 to 2.5 to 2.8 to 3.0 over uh, several quarters, to me, that, that sends a different signal. And so um, that's the sort of thing that I'll be looking for uh, as we go through the next uh, several years. Okay. Uh, operator, do we have another question? Take our next question from Chris Banks. Thank you. This is Chris Banks, Senior Director with Itocho International in Washington. Good to see you, Raphael. Um, I have a question, uh, if we could turn back to um, one of the issues you talked about before, about how you are not seeing any evidence of froth in the financial markets. And I wonder if you might comment on um, the, the housing sector and if you see or are concerned about any froth in that particular market. We know, as, as you mentioned, you know, lumber prices have tripled, um, you know, housing prices overall are up, you know, double digits. Um, we have, you know, record low inventories. Um, so are, are we headed toward another uh, housing bust like we saw before the financial crisis or is, is this time different in, if so, how, how is the Fed thinking about this? And how is the Fed thinking about the risk to the real estate sector in general? Thank you. So, so thanks, Chris. And you know, I would say you know, the housing market is, uh, uh, has some basic fundamentals of supply and demand that, that uh, would suggest that prices are gonna go up. You mentioned uh, the low inventories. Uh, so you know, through the pandemic, I think uncertainty has driven many families to say, this probably isn't the time for me to put my house up for sale. I don't have a lot of uh, the same amount of certainty about whether I'm going to still have a job and what income's going to look like and, and that kind of stuff. Uh, and that coupled with uh, the, the, uh, the wealth that many have is putting upward pressure on prices. And, uh, and so in the existing market, the pressures are significant. And then if you move to the, uh, the new build market, uh, the, the input prices have gone up uh, considerably. I, I, I was talking to a builder a couple of weeks ago who said, you know, the, the increased cost, uh, the cost increases are at the margins of about 40% uh, above where they were before. And that's going to put uh, upward prices, on, upward pressure on prices as well. So I think those fundamentals would suggest that um, the market is playing out as the market is going to play out. The one thing that is absent that I've seen is uh, really high risk lending. So we're not seeing the rise of subprime lending in the, in the same way that we have before. And I'm also not seeing reports or, or anything to suggest that uh, some of the fraud that was happening in terms of reporting income or those sorts of activities is going on here either. Uh, rather, uh, there are some challenges um, that, uh, that we're facing 
that the buyers are facing because there are so many other buyers out there. And in some markets, I would also say that we have institutional engagement, um, um, companies that are buying properties, single family homes to rent them out. That has become a much bigger portion of the market uh, since the financial crisis. So I, right now, I don't think it's froth that way in the same way that we saw in the great financial crisis. That's not to say the price are always gonna go up, uh, but, uh, but if there are changes, they'll be from basic market forces. Are there places, if I could follow up on that, that you and your colleagues look at to consider froth? So for example, leverage loans, um, compression and risk spreads, are there, are there areas you, you monitor particularly, that you're particularly focused on as an indicator of whether there's a sign of trouble? Well, so you mentioned leverage and, and we, what we've seen over a series of episodes is uh, leverage is a source of a potential source of risk. So we need to understand that. I would also emphasize um, activities in non-bank sectors. Those are the types of financial sectors that we actually have uh, less clear sight lines into. And so it requires us to have extra work uh, and effort, extra effort to try to understand exactly what's going on there. So those are two areas that, that I do uh, worry about. And we, we, I do try to get as much information as possible because I think if we're gonna see uh, worrying froth, it's gonna happen there first uh, before we see it in the banking sector more directly. Okay, I think we have time for one last question if it is a quick one operator. Okay, got a live question from Peter Hooper. Mr. Hooper, you may go ahead. Since we're having some technical difficulties, we'll move on to take our next question. Apologies, that is the last question in the queue. Back over to you, Dr. Hubbard. Well, well thanks so much. Uh, assuming Peter isn't now unmuted, if, if not, uh, I wanna thank uh, President Bostic for being with us today. While the Fed may not be ready to take the punch bowl away, I'm afraid I'm going to have to from this particular <laughs> session uh, at, at any rate. And I would recommend to everybody what President Bostic referred to, and I did as well, is a number of great trackers and features are right on the Atlanta Fed website. So I'll give that as a, a short commercial. So uh, thanks to all. Uh, all members attending this virtual meeting. And of course, thank you, uh, President Bostic, for your remarks. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. For more event audio, subscribe on iTunes or visit us at CFR.org.